War and peace. When is it right to fight? Well, our mission grew out of a Bible study and prayer fellowship in the South African Army, and I've had the joint privilege of being involved in ministry in 38 countries, and I've been involved in eight wars and three revolutions as a missionary. And when is it right to fight? It's an important question we often ask. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3 we read, To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away and a time to gather. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to gain and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts. Lovely piece of poetry, important piece of scripture. There's a time for war. The law of God is clear in Exodus 22 verse 2, expounding on the Ten Commands. In the case laws of Exodus we read, If the thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. Now notice this is just talking about a thief. This isn't talking about if a murderer, rapist, terrorist, child abuser... If a thief breaks in at night and he's struck so that he dies, there's no guilt for his bloodshed. It's dark, it's at night, you couldn't see whether he had a weapon or not, and he shouldn't have been anywhere. But obviously you don't normally kill a thief, but uh, restitution is God's way of punishing. But in the case laws of Exodus, look at different scenarios, and right here, even if it's just a thief breaking in and he's struck so that he dies, not just as injured, there's no guilt for his bloodshed. So the law of God establishes the basic right of self-defense. Any person is justified in defending himself or his family whenever they're attacked or whenever their lives are in danger or perceived to be in danger. Any weapon is permissible in self-defense. The law of God does not say the homo's guilty if he used a sword, but innocent if he only used a club. No, the issue is not one of the weapons or the tools. The weapon is not the issue. It's the right and the duty of self-defense that's at stake here. Have you noticed that God has provided his creatures with weapons? Almost every animal has some means of defense. For flight, or for fight, or means of camouflage. To defend themselves and to defend their loved ones. God has equipped his creatures with claws, teeth, serious teeth, talons. In fact, these talons of an eagle are longer and stronger than lion's claws. Quills. If you've come across porcupines, they have serious quills. In fact, it's a porcupine that killed Elsa, probably the most famous lioness in history. Uh, Famous born free Elsa died from having uh, attacked a porcupine and the quills caused infection and killed her. Horns. Rhinos have horns. Sadly, that seems to be a 
negative these days is there's some very evil people who seem to think that it's something they desire and they're willing to poach for it. The buffalo horns, the parlor's horns, the mountain goat's horns. Wouldn't you love to be like a mountain goat when you climb the mountain? Can you imagine what it takes to climb up like that? I've been climbing up Devil's Peak and seen mountain goat so close I could have almost touched him. He didn't look at all bothered. And when I did take another step, he just bounded along. And it was like no space for something more than maybe a, the old 50-cent piece uh, size. And uh, yet he could bounce around up there quite happily without losing his bounce. Hooves, you don't want to get behind, whether it's a giraffe or a buck or a horse. I believe they can kick quite hard. And tusks. Elephants can turn your vehicle over if they want to. I mean, their tusk can go straight through the side of your vehicle. How can it be that the Creator has provided his creation with weapons and with the instincts to protect their lives and their young? And you don't want to get in the wrong side of a lioness. And she's looking after cubs, you know, best stay away. But how is it now that born-again, Bible-believing, spirit-filled, names written in the Lamb's Book of Life believers are meant to be just pacifist doormats? No. God equips all his creatures with weapons, but not believers. They're meant to just not defend or resist. Does that make sense? Like salt that's lost its saltiness, good for nothing but to be thrown outside and trampled underfoot. There are times when you must stand up. There are times when you must step out. There's times when you must speak out. And there's times that you must fight the good fight of faith. The scripture teaches us that we need to be ready to defend our family, our faith, and our future. 1 Timothy 5 verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, it's not enough to provide everything else but not provide actually defense. Anyone who fails to provide protection for their family has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I'll take it further. Anyone who fails to protect his family is worse than animal. What animal will not fight to defend its young? Will you think of any animal that would not fight to protect their young? Our Lord Jesus told his disciples in Luke 22 and verse 36, He who has no sword, let him sell his garments and buy one. Now this isn't spiritualizing. We know that the Bible does speak about the importance of having the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit, but... The Apostle Peter had a sword, a physical sword, and the Lord didn't rebuke him for having a sword. When he used it at the wrong time, interfering in the plan of salvation, the Lord said, put your sword back in its sheath. That's not the same thing as throw away your sword. Peter, what are you doing with a sword? He just told him a few verses before to have a sword, and if he didn't have a sword, sell his cloak and buy one. Now, your cloak was normally your, your bedding, your warmth. Your cloak was one of the most expensive, valuable things that a person had in terms of clothing. You sell your cloak to get a sword. That's how important a sword is. Pacifism is in defiance of historic Christian teaching. The 39 Articles, which is the foundational statement of the Church of England, states clearly in Article 37, it is lawful for Christian men to carry weapons. The Westminster Catechism, considered the finest expression of biblical teaching, states under the Sixth Command that the prohibition against murder, the Sixth Command, requires as our duty all careful studies, all lawful endeavours to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting by just defence against violence 
protecting and defending the innocent. So all lawful endeavors and careful study. So when you are studying forms of defense, when you are engaging in sword fighting, fencing, boxing, karate, going to the shooting range, honing your skills, self-defense, unarmed combat, kickboxing, whatever it is, that's in fulfillment of the sixth command. Preparing that when the time comes, you can protect those that you need to protect and that you can protect yourself because that's part of the sixth command. Murder is wrong. Everything you can do to prevent murder is good. Like a muddied spring or a polluted well is a righteous man who gives way to the wicked. Proverbs 25 verse 26 is so important. This is the principle. Imagine being in a place where there's very little water. I can imagine that. I've walked all day with no water. Had all the water bottles exhausted. No water. Walking, walking. Southernmost part of the Sahara Desert up in the Nub Mountains. Imagine you get to a spring or well and it's polluted. I mean the disgust, not just disappointment, the absolute disgust at a well or a spring that is polluted. Now that's how God looks at a righteous person who gives way before the wicked, who's a coward, whose salt has lost its saltness, who will not stand up and fight against the wicked. When St. James Church of England in Kenilworth, just down the road here, was attacked by upland terrorists of the Pan-African Congress, 25th of July 1993, one of our missionaries... Schaffenbeck was in the congregation and he opened fire from quite a distance. Roughly where we're standing taking this picture, he had to shoot across all those pews to injure the terrorists who are standing Kaima Kama in the uh, entrance where they're opening fire spraying the congregation with his machine gun. Now that's gun control, um, being able to hit your target under stressful situation. But this resistance by a single member of the congregation with a snub-nosed .38 revolver. That caused the terrorists to break off the attack and flee. And it didn't just stop them attacking there. They planned to first attack St. James. And by the way, after emptying all the magazines and throwing the grenades, uh, and only one of them deployed, so only two grenades were thrown and only one clip of ammo was fired, but there were four of them and they all had multiple grenades and so on. But because of that resistance, they stopped. How many more people would have been killed if there hadn't been resistance? But straight off that, they planned to go less than half a kilometre up the road to Christchurch and attack them. And so a little bit of resistance at one congregation saved two congregations from attack. And who knows how many people would have died. They intended to finally barricade the doors, throw petrol bombs inside and set the place alight. That, that was part of the plan. Nehemiah 4 verse 14 says, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Fight for your brethren, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your houses. That doesn't sound very pacifist, but that's a straight command. Fight for your family. So just as personal defense or family defense or church defense is necessary, so too there are times when national defense is required. Deuteronomy 28 verse 1. Now it shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will... Verse 7, cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before your face. They will come against you one way and they will flee before you seven ways. And there are times that God gives the victory not to the strong but to the righteous. The great Christian theologian Augustine of Hippo, he came from a place that today would be called Algeria. He's in North Africa. 
Augustine, certainly the greatest Christian theologian of the first millennium. Some people say one of the greatest theologians of all time. He taught a Christian can be a soldier and serve both God and his country honorably. Augustine spelled out the Christian criteria for a just war. You might have heard the just war theory. Well, it comes from Augustine, 4th century. This involves three aspects, just ad bellum, just in bello, and just post bellum. Just ad bellum, a just cause for war, just in bello, just conduct during the war, and just post bellum, a just conclusion of the war. If the cause isn't good, if your conduct isn't good, and if the conclusion of the war isn't better than it was before, don't even get started. A just war requires a just cause. Innocent life must be an imminent danger and intervention must be to protect life. Only duly constituted authorities may wage war. War must be a last resort only after you've exhausted all peaceful means at resolution. There must also be a reasonable possibility of success to justify involvement in a war. There's no point sacrificing needlessly. Just conduct in a war requires that it's limited to military targets and not endanger civilians, nor must it damage the environment, nor must it harm animals. We are told in Deuteronomy 20, verse 19 to 20, that you're not even to chop down the fruit trees during a war. Even during a long siege, you don't chop down the fruit trees. That's what you're fighting for, for life. You don't destroy that which gives life. Destruction of trees, particularly fruit trees, is expressly forbidden for soldiers during a war, even during a long siege. Now, how much more is it wicked for us to lay waste to scorch earth entire regions? The benefits of the war must be proportional to the costs and risks of the war. There's been a lot of worthless wars that achieved absolutely nothing worthwhile that cost a fortune, especially in terms of lives and destruction of property. In a just war, there must be a clear distinction between combatants and non-combatants, which used to be so. There was a time that because of the influence of Christianity, combatants strictly respected non-combatants. And it was a shock to the Christian nations of Europe to hear of Sherman's march through Georgia and how Lincoln's armies targeted civilians, shelled Atlanta, destroyed farms, poisoned wells, abused population. They did not know it was possible that a Christian nation could engage in such hideous behavior. Well... That was bad enough during the American War between the states, but worse was to come, such as during the Anglo-Boer War. The Anglo-Boer War occurred in 1899, the same year that just a few months before, Great Britain had signed the Hague Convention on the Rules of Warfare, 1899. Britain signed at the Hague, along with all the civilized nations of the world. Every single kingdom in Europe signed it. No civilians are to be targeted. Farmhouses are not to be damaged. Wells are not to be poisoned. National monuments and churches are sacrosanct. No destruction of, uh, of agriculture and so on and so forth. I mean, Britain signed that in 1899. And they promptly went on to engage in the most brutal scorched earth, probably copying Sherman's march through Georgia and Lincoln's army's behavior towards the South between the war between the states. Emily Hobhouse the brave Englishwoman was the one to alert the world to the atrocities taking place in Orange Free State and the Transvaal by the British armies of Kitchener, Lord Kitchener, and under Alfred Milner's direction. We have a road near here named after Milner. Well, Milner was a very evil man. And 
They even took pictures of them burning farmhouses. Emily Hophouse document, 30,000 farms were destroyed. Millions of, of livestock were killed. Vast amounts of destruction of culture <coughs> caused, deliberately. Now, you may wonder, in the Downton Abbey film, you hear about Lord Grantham was in the South African War and his uh, attendant, uh, but you don't hear what they did. Well, how could they say anything about it? Because what could they say? We burned farmhouses, we round up women and children, put them into concentration camps, we poisoned wells, shot cattle and sheep. I mean, where's the glory in that? They've documented blowing up, dynamiting the house of the Boter family, 28th of August, 1901. Burning farms, destroying homes, concentration camps, not a stick of shade out in the felt, just putting bell tents in the middle of winter and throwing thousands of poor women and children in there who were called refugees, but the signpost as Emily Hophouse documented, called them prisoners of war and warned them of being shot if they left. Same time the government was saying, no, we take them in for their protection, they're um, refugees. You'll be shot if you pass this in offence. Emily Hophouse took this, these pictures, like Lizzie Van Sale holding this porcelain doll given to Bloemfontein concentration camp. Why is she so emaciated? It was the government's policy under Lord Kitchener that families who had male members of their families in the field fighting should be given quarter rations. And here's an 18-year-old, died in Bloemfontein, the British concentration camp. Hayes Britianus Vermeulen, died aged 12 in the Bloemfontein concentration camp. We only have these pictures because of Emily Hophouse who documented this. 1902, 2nd of February, they burned down this church in Lindley. Why burn down a church? What has this got to do with warfare? And it's expressly forbidden by the Hague Rules of Warfare, which has just been signed by the very government doing it. Emily Hophouse had these cross-stitchings produced in order to communicate what was being done in, in this particular case in Orange Free State concentration camps. Today you can go to Bloemfontein to the Women's Memorial in the Anglo-Brew War Museum and you see this beautiful depiction of uh, Afskate, uh, the departure. As the man heads out to war now, you would think he's taking all the risks. His wife and child being left behind, they're safe, you would think. Well, they've got, just behind this monument, they've got a wall of remembrance listing the 5,800 names of the men who died in the war between 1899 and 1902. Boer commandos who were killed in action or, that's in the front and behind, who died of wounds or uh, who died of diseases. 5,800 men. But then you've got the women's monument with the names and details of the 32,000 Boer women and children who died during the same war. Absolutely second. In what kind of war do six times more Women and children die, then the men. The battle against violence aimed at women and children. And I even saw amongst the wall three Hammonds who died in the concentration camps. Oh, there are many Boerters and Faris and others listed amongst those who died in those concentration camps. For freedom, for folk, and for fatherland. Enemy combatants who surrender or are captured are not to be mistreated in any way. 
is the biblical principle and which is in the hate rules of warfare. And yet Boers were regularly shot because they weren't wearing a uniform. But they were farmers. They didn't have uniforms. And so this was extremely unfair. That, and if you've ever seen the film Break a Marant, which is one of the best films made in the Boer War, even though it's made from the enemy's perspective, uh, but it's an Australian production on how the British, after having ordered the Australians to do scorched earth and kill prisoners and so on, uh, put on trial three Australians and had two of them shot, including this captain, Breaker Morant, for obeying the orders. But they, at that point, were heading to resolution. They were having to sign peace treaty. They needed some scapegoats. And, oh, the Australians, let's blame them. Not that they were doing anything different from what all the British, Canadian, and other units were doing. Uh, and so Australians were so outraged by it, uh, they're still very angry about it, and they made a law afterwards that no Australians could be court-martialed by other than Australian officers, because it was British officers court-martialing and executing Australian soldiers, which still angers the Aussies to this day. Not that Breaker Morant and his compatriots were good people or innocent at all, but what they were doing was the same as what the others are doing. It's like giving speeding fines at a Grand Prix race. Uh, but worse than that, Lord Kitchener, who ordered this court-martial, was the one who had ordered the shoot the prisoners and scorched earth and so on. Although Breckenmarant went further than that, he actually murdered a German missionary too. The Kaiser was furious, there were a lot of people in Europe angry, and so there was a, a kind of tossing away of uh, this. But that's the kind of cynicism. The 20th century began with concentration camps, scorched earth, targeting civilians, and executing of prisoners. The worst example of the murdering of prisoners in history has got to be the Catan Forest Massacre of 1940. Catan Forest is close to Smolensk. It's well on the way to Moscow. It's deep in Russia. And the entire Polish intelligentsia, all the leadership, the officers and NCOs, and many of the chaplains, professors, uh, leaders, uh, were executed by the NKVD, by Stalin's secret police, on the orders of Stalin. Now, this is while uh, Britain is meant to be <clears throat> their ally, and uh, Russia became their ally later. And so this is in New Jersey. This is a famous monument that there's a lot of outrage over it, and they're wanting to take this statue down. But it plainly shows a Polish officer being stabbed in the back by a Russian SKS rifle uh, with bayonet. Um, now, the Russians were meant to be their allies in the Second World War, and they were murdered. And worse than that, if you can imagine, is the British and Americans decided to lie about it for the next how many decades? And the textbook said the Germans murdered the Polish officers. Although, if you just have to look at a map, Katyn is very, 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 very far deep into Russia, far from Germany, far from Poland. And, uh, I mean, just the geography of the Katyn Forest Massacre should make it obvious if anyone looks at the map who did the murders. Uh, but the Polish government in exile, General Sikorsky and his daughter and his entire command were murdered by the British in Gibraltar on the 4th of July, 1943, because they were insisting on international investigations into this. And to this day, the phone and telex records of Winston Churchill, Prime Minister Britain, and the American President, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, are still sealed around June, July 1943. Still sealed how many years after the war? 
what are they hiding? Well, the Polish people are all rock-solid convinced. Roosevelt and Churchill conspired to murder their government and exile leader, their commander-in-chief, General Sikorsky, and his daughter and his entire high command uh, in Gibraltar in order to suppress the Polish investigations into the Katyn Forest Massacre. And this was lied about consistently until Boris Yeltsin, in 1993, released the documents that, no, this was done under Stalin's orders, the Russians did it, and then all the files were handed over by Vladimir Putin recently, uh, confirming the fact this was always Russian deed, everyone knew it, and it's just been suppressed. But to think they could suppress it for over 60-odd years and lie about it. And there's still school textbooks that, that lie and blamed the Germans for what everyone knew the Soviets had done. There are books and videos and films that have come out. There's an excellent film produced by the Poles, which is in Polish but with English subtitles, Katen. There are books that have come out. In fact, the first book I ever read as a teenager, I was only 14 years old, but I remember reading this book, The Last Secret. It had been sealed for 30 years, how the British and Americans had betrayed all the Russians, Ukrainians, and other uh, prisoners of war in Western Europe, but not only prisoners of war, but refugees, even Russians and Ukrainians and other East Europeans who had never even been born in Russia, whose families had fled the Bolshevik Revolution. Three million Russians and Ukrainians forcibly repatriated into the hands of NKVD. Most of which were shot out of hand. The rest died as slaves in the Arctic hellholes of Murmansk and Siberia. And this was, they said, the last secret. <laughs> Far from it. There's lots more secrets that have been coming out. There's still files in the Second World War still hidden. And much, much, much more came out since. But they hid this one for 30 years. Operation Kielhor, the portrayal of 3 million Russians and Ukrainians into the hands of the NKVD. This is a picture of what happened at, in Austria. There was a large Russian Cossack camp. And uh, first the Americans had come and told them to get, hand over their weapons because they're going to be issued with them with uh, American allied weapons so they can be easily supplied with ammunition. That was a lie. Once they were disarmed, they came to get them and they were having the worship service of the Orthodox service and they were bludgeoned, rifle-butted, bayoneted, shot, marched, forced across the, across the Danube River into the hands of the Russians. Mothers were throwing their babies into icy waters to spare them from what was on the other side of the river. And the Allies kept pushing them over, day by day, hundreds of thousands into the hands of the Soviets. That's how the Second World War, a war for freedom, democracy, and so on, was all about. Then James Bach, a French-Canadian journalist, uncovered this a few decades ago, which was a massive shocker. He showed that 1.1 million German soldiers were killed mostly by starvation at the end of the war in American prison of war camps. And Eisenhower changed it to other losses. Because there weren't prisoners of war, there were DFs, disarmed enemy forces, so he changed the categories, and then instead of um, dying of starvation, so he just put other losses. And going through the files, James Rock went, what's this other losses, which totaled up to 1.1 million? Find out in the end. More German soldiers died after the war in prison camps and died in the war in combat. James Bach went on further to document the crimes and mercies showing how 14 million Germans, mostly civilians of course, died during the war from aerial bombardments and most of them after the war uh, from literally being butchered or being 
starved to death by the Russians in particular, but also by the Americans and British and French, who did a lot of brutality after the war. And so it's the fate of German civilians in the Allied occupation, 1944 to 1950. Uh, this is, these are some of the biggest crimes that have been concealed. And then out came the shocker of the century, the Black Book of Communism, Written by communists, well, they're all ex-communists. Stéphane Cortez was the editor of Communisme magazine in France, and these were all members of the Communist Party in France. So the book Black Book Communism was first produced in French. It led to the dissolution of the Communist Party of France. When, from the communist own archives, which had been uncovered when uh, the Berlin Wall came down, the Iron Curtain collapsed under Boris Yeltsin, they opened up a whole lot of files, and they saw from their own documentation. 100 million people killed between 1917 and 1989 by communist governments, mostly in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, officially, according to their own documentation, according to their own files. 100 million. In fact, according to Professor R.J. Rommel, who's a professor of political science, the death toll is more likely 169 million. It might exceed 250 million the death toll of the 20th century of governments killing their own people. Not, not enemies being killed by foreign armies, civilians being killed by their own governments in the 20th century. But we know from the communist own documents, 100 million in the Soviet Union. By the way, this doesn't include Red China because we don't have Red China's documents yet. And that's why Professor Rummel, extrapolating with Red China's stats, says this will be at least 169 million in the 20th century, possibly exceeding 250 million people killed in the 20th century by secular humanist governments, communist governments. He calls it democide, death by government. Well, I think we're proving our point that sometimes your biggest enemy is not the foreigners but your own government it can be. Military necessity should be governed by the principle of minimum force. Now in the past this could mean that you have a champion. Most classically in the Bible where the Philistines chose their champion, they challenged the Israelites, you choose your champion and we will accept the result after single combat. So if our man wins, you serve us. If, if your man wins, we serve you. And that was an agreement. So, in the Middle Ages, you'd sometimes have a champion and knights, single combat, choosing different weapons, maybe jousting. But I would say, how much better would it be if we could just resolve the conflict in Ukraine by how about Putin and Zelensky meet one another in a ring and we determine the outcome by a single combat? The people who declare the wars should be the ones who follow it up. In fact, uh, Putin, um, despite his age, can still take people down very fast. Um, I think you'd need to have it videoed and watch it in slow motion replay to see what happened. In fact, wouldn't it be good if Biden and Putin just sorted it out themselves, uh, put them in a ring together, so maybe we could do a Hunger Games type of version? Uh, um, and uh, let's see how Biden does against Putin. Uh, you can choose your weapons. Vanilla, I think, is what he chooses. Now, every means must be taken to limit excessive, unnecessary death and destruction. One of the most noble characters in all of history is Joan d'Arc. Joan d'Arc. And uh, what a courageous individual she was. Now, combatants are not allowed to use weapons or methods of warfare which are evil. The very weapons that you use should uh, be righteous as well because you do not want to destroy the fruit trees. You do not want to kill innocent life. You don't want to be killing civilians and so on. 
A just war must be concluded with a just peace. This is the beautiful Justice Lifts the Nation painting, which is in the Court of Justice in Switzerland. And uh, absolutely magnificent. Here it shows the elders of the city looking up to Lady Justice, who's unblindfolded. I much prefer Lady Justice in Europe. Lady Justice in Europe is always unblindfolded. Unfortunately, a Lady Justice in America is blindfolded. Americans seem to think it's great to have a justice who's blindfolded. So they always depict Lady Justice blindfolded, which is an American aberration. Uh, they seem to think that's a great idea. I don't think there's a benefit in a blindfold. But Lady Justice is always holding scales of justice, weighing the evidence, and holding a sword, normally holding a sword upright, but not in Switzerland. In Switzerland, her sword's pointed downwards to an open Bible, which plainly says on it, Holy Bible. And you have the sheriffs standing in front of the German double-handed longswords while people argue the cases in front. And the elders are looking to Lady Justice for guidance according to the word of God in order to settle the disputes of the people. Revenge is not to be permitted. Now, sadly, after Jean d'Arc humiliated Britain with some very stunning victories which plainly were answers to prayer and God's grace... The British government engaged, and church sadly, engaged in vicious revenge. And first of all, Jean d'Arc should have been accorded the courtesies of a prisoner of war. But instead, they treated her abominably in so many ways, and she, they determined to try and humiliate her, to break her, and then they burned her at the stake. Why? What on earth? And they convened a kangaroo court which claimed that she is a witch. <laughs> well... Funny, funny. She, is, she is damned as a heretic at a kangaroo court. But in the 20th century, Jean d'Arc was recognized by the same Catholic Church as a saint. So a heretic in the 15th century, a saint in the 20th century. How can you trust the judgments of Pharisees like that? Jean d'Arc is one of the most noble, courageous characters in all of history. And she was treated viciously in revenge. They couldn't beat her on the battlefield, so they burned her alive. Now, that is forbidden. You don't take revenge on the enemy. Life and property is to be respected. The rule of law is upheld. You're meant to treat your defeated enemies with grace. That's what we learn in sports. You play hard, and you win or lose graciously. And you treat the other person with respect. You might have beaten them on the field, whether it's a field of battle or a sports field, but you treat them well afterwards. The Armenians suffered the most abominable atrocities. The Turks in 1915 murdered 1.5 million of the Armenians. These are some of the oldest Christians in the world, uh, in the sense that Armenia is one of the first kingdoms in the world to become officially Christian, going right back to the second century. Well, now, that's, this is the Armenian memorial uh, for the victims of the genocide. Can anyone recognize what this memorial here is for? You should. Can anyone recognize which country this is in? Say again? It looks like a salvation monument. Ukraine? This is Ukraine. This is the Holodomor. This is the memorial to the 11 million Ukrainians who were murdered by the starvation organized by Lenin and Stalin, the Holodomor. They stole their farms, they collectivized their farms, they stole their grain. They took their cattle, they made sure that they were starved, they confiscated everything that people could have to live on and starved. And this is what they call decoolicization. It's known as the Holodomor. 
which is death by hunger. Uh, the Holodomor is, is the term used, it's a Ukrainian uh, word for death by hunger, or the hunger plague is another interpretation of that. Interesting, there's not much talk about that these days. 11 million Ukrainians murdered by communist starvation carried out by the NKVD. Now, by these biblical standards I've just gone through, there have been many senseless and unnecessary wars in which neither side was at all concerned with righteousness and where both sides share the guilt. Just take the First World War, 2014, the 100th anniversary of the First World War. I went to London. I was involved in a conference uh, commemorating the centenary of the First World War, which was declared by Britain on the 4th of August, 1914. And afterwards, I went to the Tower of London and I saw this amazing living memorial. It's the most remarkable memorial to the people who died in the First World War. These, they made 888,000 porcelain um, poppies. And now, each one was sold for £10, which meant this whole memorial paid for itself. Now, the people bought it, but they would only collect it after 11th of November on 2014. And during that time, it would be planted in a moat around the, uh, the Tower of London. And so uh, this, which could have been expensive, totally paid for itself, and all the profits made went to um, the people on pension uh, on the, the, the British Legion. Well, in the moat of the Tower of London, they planted one poppy for every person in the British Empire who died in the First World War. Over 888,000. Blood swept lands and seas of red, including some in the air, because remember it was the beginning of the air war, and uh, many in the Royal Air Force, Royal Flying Corps actually at that stage, uh, perished, of course, too, and of course many at sea. So every night, people would gather and they would read the names from the 4th of August till 11th of November. It took that long, reading the names every night uh, of those who died. And, you know, I don't know what others think, but when I looked at this, I just saw red. Because there's no questioning the courage and integrity of the men who paid the supreme sacrifice in this war. But the politicians who sent them there. And for what? And why were we on the side of the terrorists? What was the cause of the First World War? A Serbian terrorist of the Black Hand murdered the Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie on their 10th wedding anniversary in Sarajevo. Brutal, savage murder. Sponsored by Serbia, who was a rogue state sponsoring these terrorists that armed, trained them, everything else... And everyone condemned the murder when it happened. But a month later, Britain goes to war on the side of the terrorists, supporting the people seeking redress from the terrorist-sponsoring state of Serbia. Bizarre. Absolutely bizarre. Now, when I first went to Ypres, where most of the British army is buried, there's 165 British and Empire Commonwealth war cemeteries in and around just 10 kilometres of Ypres, I counted 65 Hammonds on the walls. Now, when you find people on the walls, it means they can't find the body. Remember, 85% of the people who died in the First World War died from artillery. And artillery can make a horrible mess. Now, there's graves as well. So when I went to the Commonwealth War Commission, they told me 480 Hammonds died in the First World War. That's just one family's name. And Why? 
Why? What was the First World War about? Why were we fighting? And why were we fighting for a war which had nothing to do with us? It had nothing to do with Britain. Serbia had sponsored terrorists who had killed the heir to the Austrian throne. Obviously, Austria and Serbia have a scrap. But what's it got to do with Russia or Germany or France or Britain or South Africa or Rhodesia or America or Canada, Australia, New Zealand? What did it have to do with anyone else? This could have been a couple of weeks operation between Austria and Serbia and that would have been it. And you'd probably barely know about it. But no. Banksters, Freemasons, globalists engineered this catastrophe, the worst event in the history of civilization to bring down Western Christian civilization, to bring about the Soviet Union, to bring about the League of Nations, the United Nations, and a whole lot of other hideous things. Well, on the 11th of November, we remember. But on the 4th of August, we also remember. On the 4th of August in 2014, um, like many others, we switched off all lights and uh, lit a candle. Sometimes wars are completely fabricated by the media. Do you remember Serbia? Remember Time or Sly Magazine, Newspeak and Useless News and World Report? Do you remember this picture? Must it go on? Belsen, 92. The pictures that shame the world. Horror at the new Holocaust. As it so happens, it's complete and utter total fraud. This man in the middle here had a defect which meant that he was quite skeletal. They had him take off his shirt so it looked like this. But he wasn't mistreated. There's no concentration camp. They made several strands of barbed wire. You're completely free to go in and around. They had the people stand on one side and the cameraman on the other side. There's no concentration camp. There's nobody in a, in a, in a fenced-in area. This it was, turned out to be a complete and utter fraud. It was on the front page of all the newspapers and magazines and it mobilized America and NATO to bomb... Serbia, why? Well, funnily enough, Europe just ended up, would you believe it, NATO and the USA ended up fighting for Al-Qaeda-supporting terrorist Bosnians against Christian Orthodox Serbs. Now, my father-in-law, who worked a lot in Eastern Europe, he said, and he knew Yugoslav well, he said, I'd never, ever, 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 ever get involved in a war in the Balkans. It's not our fight, and it's got nothing to do with it, and it goes back centuries, and it's a complicated mess. You'd never want to get involved in it. He said, but if we were forced to, I most certainly wouldn't come on the side of the Bosnians. I'd be on the side of the Serbs. Now, why do you say that? Do you know what a, a Bosnian is? Anyone know what a Bosnian is versus a Serbian? Yeah, I mean, I've had people talk about the Bosnians and the Serbs ad nauseum, even on TV, and I've, I've caught out some of these chaps saying, do you know what makes a Bosnian different from a Serb? They don't know. Well, the Turkish Empire ruled this whole area, what became Yugoslavia, for centuries. And they had a blood levy. The Turks required one out of every Christian males born to be given to the Ottoman Turkish Sultan to be trained as Janissaries. The Janissaries were all Christian boys raised in brutality to be the shock troops of the elite fighting unit of the Ottoman Empire. So a, a, a janissary was a boy from Christian parents who would be raised a fanatical Muslim to kill Christians. They called it the blood levy. Well, the Bosnians were those Serbs who converted to Islam to avoid 
the extra taxes and uh, the blood levy and so on. So the Bosnians are Serbs, ethnically, linguistically, but they're Muslim Serbs. And America decided, uh, and all of NATO, to bomb Serbia, 17,000 aerial bombing sorties as a direct result of that fictional picture, that fictional narrative, to support Al-Qaeda-supported Bosnian terrorists against Orthodox Christian Serbs. Killing thousands of civilians and bombing cities. When they started at the beginning of this war last year, when the Ukrainian war started, the first war in Europe since the Second World War, the first time cities have been shelled since 1945 in Europe. They've forgotten the 1990s when NATO bombed Serbia's capital is Belgrade. Have you forgotten all this? Apparently. And then, of course, you get other fraud. I mean, how many times have you heard about Syria? Just when Syria is winning the war, they apparently uh, perform a gas attack, although the evidence has now come out, it's without a shadow of a doubt, all these chemical warfare and gas attacks in Syria were staged by NATO members, especially Turkey, at the right time, normally at Barack Hussein Obama's uh, insistence in order to justify America throwing a few more cruise missiles into uh, Syria and so on. But the frauds, the lies. And Syria's been targeted, and yet Syria happened to have the largest number of Christians in the Middle East after Egypt. Second largest number of Christians in the Middle East. Egypt's got the largest. And Syria has the most freedom for Christians in the Middle East. And interesting, they're getting targeted now much of the Syrian army is Christians because they know the only thing standing between them and getting beheaded by Al-Qaeda and ISIS is uh, Assad. And, of course, the bombing of Libya, which had nothing to do with what they said it had. But in every case, the Western lies and the US and UK and NATO intervention resulted in chaos, death and destruction and no improvement. I mean, can you see the magnificent improvement between how it was before the intervention and how it was afterwards? You know, so much better democracy coming to a city near you through, you know, bomb the people into democracy. They lied about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. They lied about the Gulf of Tonkin incident that got America into Vietnam. They lied about Libya. It's all about humanitarian aid. They're lying about Iran now. I haven't seen this film, but the title looks interesting. War Made Easy, How Presidents and Pundits Keep Spinning Us to Death. Um... I think that's a lot of it. Can you think of one war waged by the United States in the last century that made anything better? I mean, when I've asked this of Americans, I've had only one serious reply, and it's Granada. Think, okay, I'll give you Granada. Uh, Ronald Reagan invading Granada um, made uh, Granada better. Um, okay, so there's, there's one example. It's a very short war. I think it lasted a few hours. And uh, it, it's... It, kicked the Cubans out of Granada and it made things better. So, okay, there's one war where they actually made the situation better. Can we name a second one? And uh, I've got American Christians and military people scratching their heads to try and think, where did our military intervention make things better in the 20th century? However, we can also discern history many necessary wars which were defensive and just. The Battle of Tours, 732 in France, was one such landmark battle. Charles Martel, the hammer, rallied the Christian souls of Europe on the plains of Poitiers in the Battle of Tours. They courageously stood firm, resisting six furious charges of the Muslim cavalry, which up to then had been victorious for almost a century of expansion. 
and they routed them and they sent them fleeing back across the Pyrenees Mountains into Spain and saved Central Europe from becoming Eurabia. The Reconquista, which liberated Spain from 800 years of Islamic occupation oppression, 1492, the year that Columbus sailed the ocean blue. They first liberated Granada, which was the last... Uh, by the way, don't confuse it with the other Granada I mentioned, where Ronald Reagan made that's an island in the Caribbean, named after this last fortress in Spain. But the Reconquista, I'll call that a just war. The Great Siege of Malta, from the defenders' point of view of 1565, a very just war they were defending against 40,000 of the best Ottoman Empire had to throw against them, and a few hundred knights, and a few thousand civilian militia stood firm for months, four months, endured the most savage bombardments and attacks, and won. That was a just war. The Battle of Lepanto, the last great naval battle fought by rowing vessels, October 1571, when Austrian Holy Roman Empire Navy defeated the Ottoman Turkish Navy. These were other vital defensive battles which protected Europe from being overwhelmed by Islamic invasions. And one can also remember the lifting of the Turkish siege on Vienna, 11th of September, 1683, as the Polish cavalry and German infantry came pouring in from the north, attacking the Turkish force that was surrounding Vienna. As a result of this resounding victory, the bakers made the croissant, the crescent-shaped pastry, um, to celebrate we had the Turks for breakfast. And so a crescent, which should still be in a crescent moon shape, uh, Unfortunately, many people have croissants now that look very elongated and need to get back to the crescent shape. And by the way, the cappuccinos also came from the time because a capuchin monk going through the tents of the Turks found lots and lots and lots of coffee. Turks had conquered lands that had lots of coffee. And so he opened up a um, coffee shop and that's where cappuccino comes from because it was a capuchin monk offering coffee. Uh, and it was captured coffee, liberated from the Turkish tents. So... Croissants and coffee, there we go, reminds you of some of the importance of history. Deuteronomy 20, verse 1 to 4 says, when you go out to battle. That is not if, when you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So it shall be when you are on the verge of battle that the priest shall approach and say to the people, he shall say to them, hear Israel today. You're on the verge of battle with the enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid. Do not tremble or be afraid because of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to save you. That is God's word to us when we go to war. Many of the Psalms are praise to God for guidance in battle or hymns of thanksgiving to the Lord for victory in battle. We used to read a Psalm, or chaplain used to read a Psalm to us every morning in the South Ghana Army. And that's part of prayer parade, reading a psalm. And before we ever went on operation in Angola or uh, across the border from Southwest Africa, they would read a psalm. The officer commanding would normally choose a psalm, put on a printed um, card, have it printed, distributed to all of us. We'd each have a card with some specific uh, verse. And the psalms were prayed after we came back as well. The scriptures reveal that God is a God of war as well as a God of peace because God is primarily a holy God of justice. On occasions, God not only permitted war, but he even commanded some wars. In the Bible, military defense against invaders is given the same status as capital punishment for murderers. 
If all the people with a conscience refuse to fight, it'll leave the battlefields in the hands of men without a conscience. Case in point. Anglo-Zulu War. Unjust war. Uh, Britain invaded Zuland. The Kingdom of Zuland had not attacked uh, Natal, uh, but it was the desire of the British to expand and to get a confederation of South Africa, much like they'd just organized in Canada, and they wanted some confederation of South Africa, and Zuland stood in the way, and so they fabricated a pretext to invade. Well, when the British finally captured King Keshwara, the officer commanding was a Christian. And even whether it was a just war or not, he ordered his men to stand at attention, present arms. The order was given, present arms, to Keshwara, whose armies had defeated the British at Isinwana, who had given them the worst defeat ever experienced at the hand of the native army. But they honoured the king of the Zulus. They defeated him. Well, Commandant General of the Cape at that time, uh, Charles Gordon, fine evangelical general, he was Commandant General of Her Majesty's Force in the Cape Colony in South Africa. His office was just up below the sundial, above um, where the steps are just to the left. I've been summoned on orders to meet the Commandant there when I was in the Army as well. And uh, this was where Charles Gordon was based. And so he was instructed to put King Kishwara in irons and put him in the dungeon at the castle. <laughs> General Gordon was a dedicated evangelical Christian. He knew that wasn't just. Uh, King Kishwara wasn't a bad man. Um, he had been a victim of an aggressive war, and so he had him treated with every respect and kindness, made sure he had everything he wanted, and he was free to walk uh, all over the castle without any uh, hindrance. He was treated as a guest, not as a prisoner. And General Gordon had the gospel translated to him in, in to Zulu. He prayed with him. He um, uh, treated him well, and he arranged for him to go overseas to meet Queen Victoria, who restored his kingdom to him with some restitution later. You see, sometimes even a man with a conscience involved in even an unjust army or an unjust war can bring some grace and mercy and inject some salt and light into some oil of uh, mercy into a situation that would otherwise be pretty horrific. If everyone with a conscience had left the army, that would not help. Well, Jim Gordon made his strong and popular opinions known. The Boers had recently been thrashed by the uh, the Boers had recently thrashed the British army at the Battle of Majuba. General Gordon said, these are men of his own heart, brave, frugal, pious men. And the Boers were in the right, and we shouldn't have invaded the Transvaal. And so the first Anglo-Boer War, they didn't know it was the first, they didn't know there would be a second, but the first Boer War, uh, he was on the side of the Boers. And as for the Zulu, who had just been invaded in 1879, they'd been badly treated. The promises made them had been broken. And uh, yes, they'd been um, brutally uh, treated. Uh, the British had been pretty savagely treated. No prisoners were taken by the Zulus at Isanwana, and they had uh, wiped out them. They'd disemboweled the uh, bugle boys and all the rest of it, and there was a lot of anger. But nevertheless, the British had invaded them. They'd drawn first blood. They had started the battle. And so um, General Gordon treated King Keshwara with uh, the concern of a man who was an evangelist. And Gordon also respected the Boers, and he had his tracts translated to Dutch and distributed to the God-fearing Boers to study. So Gordon was particularly to care for the Basutu border question. 
And during this time, we had dealings with Cecil John Rhodes, who said Gordon's is an extraordinary man, totally disinterested in money. In other words, he couldn't buy him. So finally, General Gordon resigned as Commandant General of Cape, saying it wasn't possible to do anything with such a weak, vacillating government as that in Cape Town. And where did he go? Because he was without a commission for a while, he went for 14 months to Palestine, which was then under the Ottoman Turkish Empire, and he did Bible study and archaeological research, and he's the one who identified where the tomb of Christ is, uh, the garden tomb, and Golgotha. The Catholics and Orthodox are still going to a place that some priests had a vision about, and they built massive religious structures over it. But evangelicals and Protestants, we go to what they call Gordon's Tomb and Gordon's Calvary, because General Charles Gordon, who was once common in General Cape, identified in terms of Bible study and archaeological research where it is. Just some anecdotes. However, having said all that, foreign military adventurism does not fulfill the requirements of a just war. Like the British invading Zuland in 1879, that's an unjust war, not justified. So instead of sending the Marines, which the Americans love to say, how about sending in the missionaries? They'll do a lot more good, and they won't make enemies of the country. There is no military or political solution to the complex crisis endemic to many parts of the world, like the Middle East. They need the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead of sending bombs, how about sowing Bibles throughout these regions? Instead of intervening in the incessant wars, we need to bombard them with gospel radio broadcasts, ministry through the internet, Bibles online, wholeheartedly work to fulfill the Great Commission. We will do more to undermine terrorism and aggression by fulfilling the Great Commission than we will by military expeditions. Our military should be to defend our borders, not to go invading in countries far away. There are frequently alternatives to war, such as diplomatic and economic measures. And there's always the more excellent way of Christian love and gospel ministry. The wise Christian does not seek to selfishly avoid the problems of this world, but courageously steps out in faith to be part of the solution. Consider the example of Switzerland's armed neutrality. When you've got a plus in your flag, that's a very positive sign. The Swiss are not pacifist. They take national defense very seriously. I was on the way to a minister's conference in Switzerland, and I saw the shooting range, and I said, is that a pistol range? No, they said it's a rifle range. What do you mean a rifle range? Where do they shoot from? Oh, the other side of the valley. What do you mean from the other side of the valley? They're shooting across roads, farms, cattle. I said, well, people are good shots. Well, I'm sure they are. But, you know, uh, how many countries in the world have shooting ranges over highways and farms and habitations? So I was staying in a missionary home at that stage, and across the table from me was a young man. I said, are you in the army? And he laughed. I said, of course, we're all in the army. I said, how long would it take you to get ready for? He said, I don't know. And he said, can I time you? He said, when? Said, Starting now. And five minutes, 20 seconds later, here he is back, boots laced up, array on, rifle ready, magazine in. His sister then got excited and pulled out another machine gun. Other sister and brothers pulled out other weapons. Now, here you can see First World War, Second World War, Cold War, modern, and sword thrown in. They also had um, everything from claymore mines, anti-tank weapons. Now, this is just one little apartment. This isn't even a house. This is a little apartment on a mission station. This is Switzerland. You wonder why Switzerland's still free. Well, wonder no longer. What's a national sport? Shooting. On Saturdays, the hills are alive with the sound of gunfire. 
And every man must serve in the army and, and do a certain amount of target practice every year. But if you're a woman and you want to shoot, the government will give you an assault rifle and a crate of ammunition. And if you use that crate of ammunition and need another one, they'll give you another crate of ammunition. Free. I mean, how's that for a freedom-loving country? And it's part of their curriculum at schools. At school they learn, they start with air rifles on, but they work their way up. And when it comes to international shooting, the Swiss often are on the very front. They often take the trophies and they win. And don't be surprised in Switzerland if you see people walking or driving around with weapons of all sorts. And uh, you will see the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker um, on the road in uniform doing the manoeuvres because the whole country is mobilised. They say Switzerland does not have an army. Switzerland is an army. And that's why they're still free. And during the Second World War and the First World War, they maintained a higher rate of mobilisation than any other country in Europe. And while Germans, French and Italians were killing one another by the millions, the Swiss, who consist of German-speaking, French-speaking and Italian-speaking, were living at peace together because they have a decentralised system and because they have armed neutrality. And it's absolutely remarkable. Switzerland's an example. If you want peace, prepare for war. Peace through superior firepower. You have your point of view, and I have mine. And uh, Switzerland is a nation of sharpshooters on skis. However, their primary involvement in foreign conflicts is sending in humanitarian relief, such as through the Red Cross, which is humanity's greatest humanitarian movement, which was started by Henry Dunant, an evangelical Swiss man who took the Swiss flag and reversed it. So this, the Red Cross is the Swiss flag reversed. And the Red Cross has done a lot of good. When I have Americans saying to me, you know, the Muslims hate us because we're free. I said, no, they don't hate you because you're free. They hate you because you bomb them. Stop bombing people. Nobody hates Switzerland. Switzerland doesn't bomb people. The worst thing they do is they take humanitarian aid and medicines. You know, just... Leave people alone, stop bombing them, stop sanctioning them, and maybe they won't all hate you so much. And, you know, honestly, I'd prefer Switzerland's foreign policy to, well, and domestic policy to that of America's or Britain's any day of the week. America's first foreign, first president, General George Washington, in his farewell address, cautioned Americans against entangling alliances and foreign wars. He specifically warned in his farewell address, never get involved in Europe's wars. Well, if they just stuck to that advice, the world would be a vastly better place. They wrecked the world with their involvement in the First World War and the Second World War. If they just stayed out of it, the world would be freer. There wouldn't be a Soviet Union and so on. They've made the world a much worse place by getting involved. And so it is when the Bible says don't get involved in someone else's struggles. A person who gets involved in someone else's affairs is like one who goes down the street and sees the dog by the ears. What's going to happen if you seize a dog by the ears? You're going to get bitten in the face. You don't do something like that. If it's not your business, stay out of it. But no, they had to get involved in betraying Rhodesia into the hands of Mugabe. Much better. Oh, so much better under Mugabe than it ever was under Ian Smith, because Ian Smith wasn't perfect. So let's have a communist dictator who massacres his people. Uh, that, much better. Oh, Chiang Kai-shek was too harsh. Let's betray him and hand over to Mao Zedong. Better. Um, and so it goes on. The Shah Varon got a replacement with the Ayatollah crazies in Persia. And Batista in Cuba replaced him with Fidel Castro. Turner 
Caribbean paradise island into a hellhole. And so they went on, betraying the allies all over the world, Nicaragua into the hands of Sandinistas, and interfering in South Africa. Everywhere they've gone, they've taken bad situations, made them much, 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 much worse. Would they have just left the poor people in Ukraine alone? The Ukrainians got their freedom in 1918, but it's Americans' involvement that handed Ukraine back to the Soviets in 1918 through the 1919 Versailles Treaty. And so on it can continue. U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt intervened in the Russian-Japanese War of 1905 not by becoming a belligerent or taking sides, but by negotiating a peaceful end to the tragic conflict. And now this was a Nobel Peace Prize event of note. Instead of America taking sides, they brought about peace, ended a ruinous war. And that is a noble thing. Blessed are the peacemakers. During the height of the Cold War, we were involved in a just war in Rhodesia. And when I say we, I wasn't a combatant, I was just a schoolboy. Um, my brother was in the Rhodesian army, but uh, we, speaking collectively for the Rhodesians, were involved in a just war. And Southwest Africa was a just war. We were defending these peaceful nations from communist terrorist attacks, and the Soviets were fighting proxy wars against us. We were holding the line against Soviet expansionism. Yet during our Bible study and prayer meetings in the South African army, the Lord gave me the vision of responding to communist hate with Christian love. They were sending terrorists to us with AK-47s, landmines, rocket launchers. We needed to send missionaries to them. Have we ever gone to Russia or Cuba with the gospel? I asked back in 1980. Well, at that stage, I didn't know of anyone. We've sent a lot of missionaries since. They are smuggling in landmines, limpet mines, grenades to sow terror in our communities. 10,000 civilians died in southwest Africa from landmines and other terrorist attacks. We need to smuggle Bibles and Christian books into their territories and win converts and make disciples and undermine their communist tyranny with the fulfillment of the Great Commission. I think we had a lot more success with our missionary endeavors going to them than any of the military interventionism of the United States government because they've left countries behind that they apparently went to save in the hands of communists and terrorists. We've seen countries that used to be communist, like Mozambique and Angola, freed. We've seen countries like Zambia, freed. We've seen countries like South Sudan, freed from Islamic job. We've seen the whole of Eastern Europe freed from communism. No, I, I think the missionaries and the prayer warriors have done a lot better job than NATO has. 2022 marked 40 years of frontline fellowship, cross-border missions into war zones and restricted access areas. And so we published... Frontline Behind Enemy Lines for Christ, to recount some of the untold testimonies of how God used this initiative for the expansion of his kingdom and helping the persecuted church. And by God's grace, we now have this book in hardcover, softcover, e-book, prints on demand, and maybe we'll get it done as an audiobook this year. There are times when sinful men need to be restrained by laws and force. Liberty does need to be defended. Freedom often comes through and often needs to be maintained by hard fighting. Like a muddied spring or a polluted well is a righteous man who gives way to the wicked. Let's not give way to the wicked. But if all the Christians became pacifists, would all the Muslims, atheists, communists also become pacifists? Not likely. It is useless for the sheep to pass resolutions in favor of vegetarianism, while the wolf remains of a different opinion. For those pacifists hoping for worldwide peace, listen to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do not think that I came to bring peace to this world. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. 
The Krishnit was the first book I ever wrote, actually, and uh, it's been translated to German, Afrikaans, and Spanish. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. You have to make peace. It takes action. Sometimes it takes military action. Most times it takes missionary action. You've never lived until you've almost died. And for those who fight for it, life has a flavor the protected will never know. May God find us faithful to his word. May we be prepared to defend the defenseless and to rescue the innocent. When we have to fight, may God make us fast and accurate. To make disciples, to teach obedience to all things the Lord has commanded. The Bibles of the Christians are more powerful than the bombs of the Muslims and the Marxists. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Any questions, any comments on when is it right to fight? Question at this time, yes. Just a quick comment. Um, have you heard of the book uh, Pawns in the Game by William Guy Carr? I've not. Um, it uh, sounds interesting. Yeah, he was an admiral in the, um, admiral in the Canadian uh, Navy. And apparently he uncovered a, a letter written by uh, this high-ranking Freemason American guy called uh, Albert Pike. And he wrote a letter to a, the, the head of the mafia, a guy called Mazzini, in about the 1880s. And apparently what this letter was was the, the New World Order's plans for three world wars and how they were going to arrange in the coming century or so three world wars and uh, apparently the first, the first two were exactly exactly as, as, as he said Britain versus Germany mm. and then Britain versus Germany again and, and apparently the third world war is meant to be, uh, is meant to be Christianity versus uh, Islam which mm. I, I, I was thought would be possibly that, that the Americans want to attack uh, all the Muslims mm. in, in, in the Middle East like, and finally I'll probably huh. You know, going to Iran or something. But Sounds interesting. If you can send me the link about that yeah, book, sure. I'd, I'd like to follow it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's Just uh, on the Third World War basis, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the greatest Russian author of the 20th century, made the comment that the Third World War began in 1945 and uh, it ended with the fall of the Soviet Union. He said the Third World War was the Cold War, which is an interesting perspective. And that right now we're involved in the Fourth World War between radicalism and the rest of the world. That's just a, an interesting other perspective. Um, to follow on in another uh, movie which I saw, which uh, follows on from the Freemason thing, is a movie called Forces of Cultists. It's a French film by Jean Mabie in uh, 1944. And uh, he was a Freemason and a parliamentarian, I think. And, but he made this film, uh, and it's very, it should be compulsory view. What's it called again? Forces Occultics. Forces Occultics. He becomes a dragon to the Freemasons. Yes. And then he starts to notice that there's this alliance with the Freemasons and the banking and the financial institutions that are driving France, mm. Britain, Germany to war, world war, and the ruthlessness of it. And it's showing you the players and, and how they're doing it because we, we keep saying we, we're going into these wars, but we not going to the wars. We actually being forced into these wars by secret society and an alliance between the, the, the globalist bankers mm. and the Freemasons, which is our, yes. supposedly our people. 
who should be looking after us. They are the wasps and the wasps. Yes. Um, they are betraying us and being, but ultimately at the beck and call of the, the cabal of the bankers. It's a very interesting film, and he was, he was executed in the, in the uh, Euro trials. Oh my. Well, according to Stephen Mitford Goodson in his book History of Central Banking and the Enslavement of Mankind, all the wars in the last three centuries are bankers' wars. Which is what? Uh, well, at the moment, I'm going through a series, a four part series on Andrew Carrington Hitchcock on radio um, every Thursday m- morning on um, uh, doing a review of um, Stephen Mitford Goodson's book, History of Central Banking and the Enslavement of Mankind. It's just extraordinary to see uh, the manipulations and how uh, the bankers are behind these wars, which I'd never looked at before because histories of wars is normally giving you a geopolitical kind of perspective and maybe economic, but uh, you don't always understand the economics being the primary mover behind. So it's a real eye-opener. That's a question about Switzerland. Do they have these Davos in Switzerland? It is. So if they're really neutral, they keep those Davos? No, because they're so neutral, they don't have a strong government to do that. It's, it's all about freedom. But remember, the, peop- the Davos people might be using Switzerland as a base because they don't want their things caught up in the wars they cause. So it suits them. But uh, Switzerland is so decentralized that it's the, the, the Davos people can benefit from staying there, but they can't control the system because the system is, is a decentralized system where all the power is down in the local cantons. So Switzerland, I think, is a mostly free country. But that doesn't mean that all the banks within Switzerland are uh, good, decent uh, uh, entities. So, yes, Davos uses them. So does the World Health Organization. So does UN. Um, they, they've all got... Uh, the World Council Churches also have headquarters there. I don't think that makes Switzerland an evil country because Switzerland's not an instrument of their foreign policy. But they are using the neutrality of Switzerland as a safe place to have their places, their headquarters because it's not going to get bombed in the next war. So, uh, in that sense. But it would be nice if Switzerland decided to kick all these people out, but I don't think they, they want a government that strong that can do that. But I think it is becoming very partisan because there's a huge movement against all that's going on with Davos, mm. with UN, with World Health Organization. I mean, we saw the protests over the World Health Organization's idea to lock us all down and mm. our government's going along with it. Davos to tell us we mustn't fly around and we you know, stop carbon emissions and all this stuff. Is it, is, it is actually a contentious issue. It so is. Are they helping? Look, it isn't, it isn't impossible they could get to that point, but you'd need to use education to bulk people have to think it. So in Switzerland, you can get a referendum. So if you can get enough people to sign a petition, you can get a referendum. And, for example, uh, there was uh, this attempt uh, in, <clears throat> in Switzerland to stop... Um, the homing pigeon unit, it was redundant, so the government was trying to, uh, trying to close down the homing pigeon regiment because it was now redundant. You, you didn't need homing pigeons. And so some people mobilised opposition, got a referendum, and they won and forced the government to keep the homing pigeon regiment. And the logic of the population was governments can interfere with any form of electronic communications, but they can't interfere with homing pigeons. Yeah, so, I mean, that, that, that showed a bit of resistance. But then there was another brilliant thing a few years ago they brought out a petition to call for an end to mosques being built in Switzerland. 
and they won the referendum. No more mosques allowed to be built in Switzerland. So you can get resistance from the ground, but it needs a lot of education to get a majority of people to vote in the referendum. The point is, a gov- the government's not meant to have the power to make a law like that. But if you've got a groundswell of opposition from the ground, it is possible, in theory, to have something like out with these globalists. But you can imagine there's others who orbit to bring a lot of business into the country. So you can imagine there's um, some incentives where some people say, well, there's a few thousand employees and look at the money they bring into the economy. So is selfishness or um, a, a good principle going to win? But at least Switzerland's got the decentralised rule by um, referendums. And the Hadron Collider, does that go Switzerland? <coughs> the which? I don't know about it. It uses more electricity than entire countries. Oh, okay. And, you know, we don't know what the research in nanotechnology most likely. There could be... I don't know about that. But interesting, when you go to Switzerland, I know some people in the military there who say, you know, they've still got um, telephone lines. They've got all sorts of things. They've got right down to um, the most basic analogue communication systems because they recognise there could be an EMP, electromagnetic pulse, right over Europe, knocks out all the computers, and so they're able to still operate, and also they don't have a command structure from top down. Their military can be right down to the local, not just Canton, but the local districts, so that even if an electromagnetic pulse knocks out all the telecommunications of Switzerland, they've got backups, because they still believe in analogue, and well, they still have homing pictures. So, um... I think there's so much good to look at there, but that doesn't mean Switzerland hasn't been infiltrated and uh, subverted a lot. It's not as free and strong as I would like it to be, but it's still light years better than the alternatives but around them. Oh, oh, they all have property in Switzerland. There's a lot of dictators who've got Swiss bank accounts. Make no mistake. Mm-hmm. Yes. Andrea. Yes. Because that guy is the only skinny guy in the photo. Yes. Everyone else is dressed in normal clothes. Men are shaved. There's no dirty faces. Yes, true. Well, you, you're being observant. Good. But people need to be observant. So, you know, but everyone just focused on that one. <gasps> Belsa, 1992. Not again. And, and, and that was enough for people to support bombing of, of a country that had n- never done anything against... Uh, Britain or any other uh, NATO country. Just, but yes, so easy. Just like that. Suddenly on all the front covers, on the news media, and the people are bomb them. So 2014, I happened to be in America, and it was Obama nation at that stage, and suddenly there were gas attack in Syria, bomb Syria, and us at a Tea Party, which is a conservative group, Tea standing for taxed enough already. So conservative group in America... Tea Party, and uh, they said, don't you agree we should bomb Syria? And I said, no. And they were all shocked. I mean, they're all conservatives. Why would you not support? I said, can you find Syria on the map? And they're like, what's that got to do with it? Um, and what do they know about the history of Syria? Nothing. What do they know about the present politics in Syria? Less than nothing. But because they're patriotic Americans, they wanted to bomb another country because, are you a commie if you don't want to bomb another country? Now, I'm no pacifist. I believe in times for war, but honestly the, the amount of good, sane, conservative Christian men that I know in America who support any 
call to bomb any country for any reason. Uh, it's, it's bizarre. I don't know what is going on with them. Um, even in our most conservative days in South Africa, I can't imagine that I could have been talked into, you know, don't you think we should invade the Congo or bomb Egypt? No. I mean, to fight neighboring countries that are sponsoring terrorists attacking us, well, that's one thing. But why would we want to go to faraway places? It's, we defend, we're the South African Defence Force, we defend South Africa. I, I don't understand the mentality of people who seem to think we need to project power and bomb people far away in other countries where we can't find them on the map. Um, you know, according to Islamic Jihad, the doctrine of Islamic Jihad is, and you have this in debates with Muslims, Jihad is only defensive, never aggressive. So I'm having a debate in a mosque with a Muslim imam, and I said, could you explain to me what Saudi Arabians were defending in Spain? And I explained how many thousands of kilometers between the whole of North Africa, Saudi Arabia's in Asia, Spain is in Europe, there's the whole of North Africa in the middle, and the Mediterranean between. What is Saudi Arabia defending in Spain? Now, I, I knew he couldn't answer me, because uh, their doctrine of defensive means if you refuse to submit to Islam, that's aggression. So they've, they've changed the whole word around. So what they mean by defensive is if you won't submit to being Islamic, then you're the aggressor. And so it's defensive to attack you. Well, the only answer I could get from this imam was, I like your style. And he never answered the question. Uh, but I mean, that's the point. What are you defending in faraway countries? What is America defending in Ukraine, for example? America was right to oppose the Soviet Union putting missiles in Cuba in 1962. 60 years ago, they were right. Russia has no right to put military bases and missiles in Cuba, so close to America. This is America's sphere of influence, it's none of your business. But Russia's right to say to America, you've got no right to try and turn our backyard into your military playground either. And so, um, you know, America was right in 1962. I think Russia was right in 2022. Don't start revolutions and coup d'etats in our neighboring states and causing trouble here and then claim that you're defending yourself. Uh, no, you, you're aggressing against us. So there is a difference. But again, I, I just love this idea of having a champion. Uh, David and Goliath. Wouldn't, shouldn't we start a campaign? Can't Putin and Vladimir Zelensky and Biden get in? I mean, if they count, I mean, why not do two against one? Biden and Zelensky both against Putin. How's that? I'd like to uh, watch that kind of match. Sorry, you were going to say. Any turning points, I think, for a lot of people with the mainstream media narratives of all these wars was actually the Syrian, Syrian war when they were just absolutely acid about Assad. Yes. Yeah, okay, you can kind of go along with it. Then, but you would click on YouTube and see this. It wasn't even filtered. It was unbelievable stuff coming from ISIS, showing what they were doing across... Like cutting people's throats, beheading people, things like that in public. Yeah, yeah. So it was just beyond description. Blowing up the tomb of Daniel and, and Jonah and, and so on. And even worse, and, yeah, I mean, little girls, you know, being killed and things like this. Oh. That you just can't, you can't believe that this stuff exists on the planet in 2015 or whenever this was. And... Uh, you know, then you, you look at, well, Assad used barrel bombs, and you're like, so what? I mean, did you see what, I mean, people were getting quite agitated on both sides, because they were saying, Assad's using barrel bombs. Well, a bomb blows you up and kills you. 
whether it's a barrel bomb or a normal bomb. A barrel bomb, okay, it means, uh, think, think of a barrel of oil. Now they put some explosive and they roll it out the back of a plane that's got a, um, a ramp at the back. So it's a very unsophisticated way of bombing. It's not a precision-guided weapon, it's not a missile. It's, it's, it's about a low-tech thing that some pharmacist could make in his backyard type of bomb rolling out the back of a transport plane, not even a bombing plane. So it's extremely unsophisticated when it comes to forms of bombing. It's not like phosphorus bombs or cluster bombs, which the other side's using. And when you, when you see what this group is doing, I mean, you'd do anything. Like, they were desperate at that point. You could say, well, yeah, you can understand it completely. Well, the, the other thing here, have you ever um, Googled or checked out the uh, case about the truth about Syria or listened to the story from Assad himself, who was trained, by the way, in Oxford University and his wife as well. And <clears throat> his wife's very well-spoken, very intelligent, and so is he. He's a medical, um, medically trained person. So Assad, who's depicted as one of the worst people on the planet, um, when you hear him talking personally, but not just that, he travels around the country without layers of security, without bodyguards. You can see him at churches surrounded by Christians, who obviously are very happy to have him there, Easter, Christmas in particular. And uh, just to look at the country built up, the standard of living, and what's the real crime of Assad? Well, according to Stephen Mitford Goodson, because he doesn't have a Rothschild controlled bank. He d they don't charge interest. The people have low taxation. The people have a high standard of living uh, because he's not charging usury, ruinous interest. No wonder they hate him. And you have to also put the brakes on him. And a lot of people then went extreme anti Islam and got to go to war. And then also then realized that who's funding this ISIS? Who, a lot of these ISIS guys were released mental patients and just total prison. Like, uh, criminals scum that they used and paid and gave them weapons from the CIA. Very possibly. Oh. I mean, you'll never well, prove that link. Well, actually, actually, you're right, but it has been proven. Um, in fact, when Obama was president, Biden was summoned, as was the chief of staff of the US military, to the Senate Oversight Committee, and they admitted we started ISIS, meaning the United States of America, CIA, started ISIS. And this Ambassador Stevens, who got murdered in Benghazi back in, what was 2013 or so, he was the bag man. He took the first $500 million to launch ISIS, which Qatar provided, by the way. So Qatar and the United States worked there. So it, it came out. Biden admitted it when he was vice president. The chief of staff of the U.S. military, we started ISIS. But the excuse was, but we started ISIS to, to fight against Assad, and they've kind of gotten a little out of control. So they admitted they started ISIS. They armed ISIS, they trained ISIS, they financed ISIS. And ISIS was only killing moderate Muslims and Christians. Sure. Never anything, any enemies of, of Christians. You would think, yeah. I mean, that's the incredible thing. So anyway, one of the shockers of our time. Remember when ISIS first came on the scene, this was the most barbaric, insane terrorist group you'd ever come across in history. And it turns out, oh, they started by Obama and Biden. Thank you very much. Making the world safe for democracy. It's, you can't make this sort of stuff up. If this was a Monty Python script, you'd think ridiculous. And literally, the 
the lunatics in charge of the insane asylum, now you can see with Biden being president of America, fake president of America, uh, we can actually see the results of this, how they've turned the world and think how stable the world was just a few years ago when Trump was in the White House and how totally unstable and insane it's become. Uh, not that things weren't going a bit insane beforehand, but plainly Obama and Biden are two of the worst things that's ever happened to the world. What they've done in destroying the world's economy and uh, undermining freedom, what they did to the Middle East. The Middle East wasn't in a good shape. I wouldn't have thought the Middle East when Obama became president was a good place. But it was a lot more stable back then than it is now. That's for sure. They undermined Egypt and they've caused chaos in Syria, which is one of the more stable countries. In fact, I think Syria is a place a Christian would prefer to have lived in the Middle East because they had more freedom under Assad than they had anywhere else in the Middle East. Is Syria not also a reason why the West is so angry with Russia? Yes, because Russia saved Syria. When Syria is about to fall to ISIS, Russia um, came in and stabilized the situation. And they still got this desire to get rid of Assad. That's correct. Yes. So just to give another example of a completely insane war, which we, we, we were on the wrong side. Crimean War, 1850s. Now, no, Crimean War, Charge of the Light Brigade, Balaclava, Thin Red Line, Florence Nightingale. I mean, there were some good things that came out of it in terms of nursing. But what was the war about? Ottoman Turkish Empire was murdering Christians, massacring Christians, had just massacred tens of thousands of Christians in holy places on holy days and Russia, being the defender of the Orthodox Christians, rose up against the Ottoman Empire to punish them for how they were abusing and persecuting Christians. And Britain and France came to the support of the mass-murdering Ottoman Turkish Empire to fight against Christian Russia. We were on the wrong side in the Crimean War, talking about the 1850s. And it, it, it was completely insane. And what it did was it saved this disgusting enemy of Christianity, the Ottoman Empire, which has murdered easily 200 million Christians over the years and saved the Ottoman Empire for another worthless 67 years, during which time they murdered another 3.5 million Christians. After Britain and France saved the Ottoman Empire from being toppled by the Soviet Union, by the old Imperial Russia in 1850s. I mean, that's just another example of a bad, bad, bad war and very bad consequences. <laughs>